Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mull. And I'm Paige Wallace. Today, we are talking about creating and maintaining an activist classroom. Margaret, I think we should maybe talk about why we decided to breach this topic specifically at this period of time. So we're recording in the midst of the George Floyd protest, and it seems like a really relevant and uh, productive conversation to have. Thinking about how activism and protests can be topics of important topics to our classrooms. Yeah, and this is something you and I have been talking about for a while, but not in connection to the podcast. Um, This is something just to kind of make clear that we're really invested in and engaged in, but still figuring out. And I think we're still figuring out where the stumbling blocks are, where our blind spots are, where we could do better for ourselves and for our students and et cetera. Um, And so this is an episode in particular. I'd really, really, really love to hear from any listeners about resources they have, what's worked for them in the past, concerns they have, etc. I think for something like this to be a success, it requires a lot of collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that something we might consider doing also in the future, especially after we hear from listeners, um, is to talk about like some difficult situations that occur when you are teaching from this like vantage point, right? When you're talking about these topics, especially as educators that are white and privileged in a lot of ways. Yeah. um, Obviously, like your students are going to receive things differently depending on how they read your identity. And I often think about, I knew people who received feedback that they always made things about, you know, blackness, etc. Because they were black instructors, whereas... When I talked about blackness as a white woman, my students didn't read it as, oh, she makes everything about race. Um, And so I think part of this conversation is about like, how do we leverage that that privilege, but also not to drown the voices that are in our classroom. So I guess we could jump in. In prepping for the podcast, we were talking about the difference between, or, or just how vast protest literature or activism in the classroom, those two topics are incredibly sort of large. And so we can't talk about everything here in this one podcast. But the first thing that we want to kind of touch on is this idea of how would we structure that particular class? And I think that it would be important to decide whether or not you want a survey class on protest literature or a special topics class. And so maybe we can bounce some ideas around about the difference between how a survey class would play out versus some of the special topics classes might be interesting to explore. Yeah, so I first like want to, I guess, clarify something a little bit that when you first started talking about the difference between a survey or special topics, I was wondering too, with that survey, like, are you thinking specifically like survey of protest literature or something like American literature since 1845? And how do we adapt that for a protest focus Mm. um or is it both yeah i think it could be both right so i think you could do a survey of protest literature again that would be something that you'd have to willingly or sort of knowingly say 
this is a huge body of work. And so any survey that I do of the entire thing is going to have holes in it. And if you do a survey of protest literature, generally, you'd have to work really hard to not tokenize in that syllabus. Yeah, can't have like Native American week, Asian American week, etc. That that's right. And so I think personally, I would probably encourage it more in like an American li- like American literature survey course, like or a survey course that has a time period in it already. And so, what is that sort of sampling of protest literature for that particular time period? Oh, that's. I think that's a really good way to approach it, and thinking about. One way I think to avoid tokenizing would be to look for those connections that already exist. Like I think maybe we've said it before, but nothing exists in a vacuum. When someone's creating protest literature, they're not just engaged in what they're challenging, but also who's writing with them or along those same lines or like whose work are they adapting, etc. And that can be a way to start thinking about that wider network and not isolating your authors into one narrow identity. Absolutely. And I think just off the cuff, I'm thinking about the connection between religion and protest literature. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that would move us into special topics, but it seems like maybe religion is broad enough that you could use it in a survey course as a way of orienting. So what's the history of Catholicism and protests? What's, uh, how do we see different peoples from different cultures um, or religious backgrounds wield their religion differently um, Mm -hmm. in these sort of moments of protest. This is not what you were thinking of. Okay. (laughs) I immediately thought, I guess in this, maybe you could do something with it, Um, but Heloise and Abelard? um, How did I know? I feel like I I knew that you were going to bring up this. Like, Um, I'm not surprised at um, all. No, you shouldn't be. Um, for anyone who doesn't know me, they're my favorites. <laughs> I love them almost as much as I love Delaware. <laughs> um, if you're not familiar, Avalard is a 12th century Catholic philosopher, and Eloise was known as the smartest woman and most beautiful woman in Europe. And they had an affair, which people, aka her family, were not happy about. And so her family castrated him in the middle of the night, as you do (laughs) um but what i was thinking about specifically with this is that years later after he writes his autobiography she gets a copy of it and sends him letters because she he depicts her in his autobiography as this innocent girl that he seduced and it's all his fault he corrupted her he's so sorry um and she writes these letters and are like how dare you i wanted to do it and i would do it again i miss you i miss your body i'm having sex i love it um and in some ways like that i think it'd be maybe interesting to think about that as like small level protests like i think she knew what she was doing she was putting down her own account and so for for the record kind of of okay we got this one side of what this idea is about what's right what's wrong is but here's mine i want this out there um, and she's, she's kind of his intellectual equal and she's taking that stand. Um, but that would definitely be a creative way to look at a protest. Well, I, I think though it could be a really interesting way 
at the beginning of a course like this to mm-hmm. sort of define the parameters for protest literature to say yeah. that protest literature is an interruption of the narrative, the accepted narrative. And so how do we classify text in this particular genre? I think that would be an interesting way to do that. Yeah, she's definitely interrupting. You also might think of um, Christine de Pizan's uh, City of Ladies. Yeah, absolutely. And that interruption, that, that I think is more straightforward protest, but changing the record. and kind of goes to what we were saying before about that ne- that network of, of, of works that the author is working with, because she's directly responding to other texts and, and building off of that. And then you might follow the canon of well who's referencing her who's Mm -hmm. who's building that interruption absolutely and so i am much more like contemporary american Mm -hmm. literature and so uh these texts would be a little bit out of my wheelhouse but i think that they're important and interesting because they make us think about like this very long history of protest literature and so again back to that point of like a survey course would be expansive and Mm -hmm. so i feel that yeah there alone we had a french writer italian writer yeah (laughs) yeah different centuries and so i think that i would lean more towards doing this as a special topics just to give me a little bit more to narrow some yeah because like you said it's so expansive and if you try to tackle everything you are going to tokenize like every single identity because you or you're just not going to have any representation so the more narrow you go the more specific you can be um which also i think will lead to that universality like your students will find the connections Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll be able to talk about all of these intersects um but you need to make sure you're giving them the foundation that they can do that and uh, i think that specificity will help um, so if you were going to do a special topics for this, anything coming to mind immediately? Um, I'm putting you on the spot. I know. No. I just like brainstorming this. Um, so I, we talked about this moment of interruption and I have used, um, Kanye to introduce protest literature in previous classes. And so how he, while he's you know, problematic these days. He has a history of being the sort of celebrity figure who interrupts um, narratives, literally. And so if I were going to do a special topics, I think that I would start with thinking about protest literature and race and use Kanye as the way to introduce how... um, protest literature acts as this way of interrupting the grand narrative. So thinking about Kanye and the grand narrative about uh, Katrina and how Mm -hmm. people just chose not to leave or whatever, right? Those really false narratives that paint um, black Americans in a really dishonest, yeah, and and dishonest light, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so he interrupts that broadcast with, and if you watch it, like, no one knows he's going to do that. And you can just tell from, like, the reactions of the other, like, host when he says, like, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And there's a lot of fallout from that. But what he said is important. And it, I think it's a form of protest in which we can relate that back to literature that says American government doesn't care about black people. And so something like Native Son I think would be really interesting there, as well as, which I've mentioned this text already, but Kise Lamont's Long Division has this moment in which our character, the main character in our city, is 
he interrupts a really bizarre um, contest that's kind of like a spelling bee, but is not. It's like you use that word in a sentence, and he interrupts it and has like this tirade about how like unfair it is and ridiculous it is. And there are YouTube videos of him doing that. And so that one, that version is really reminiscent of Kanye interrupting Taylor Swift's acceptance speech, right? Which is also about interrupting the grand narrative because at the time there was a lot of outrage for that and, and not a lot of critical attention to this conversation of the ways in which um, award shows are super white. Uh, and then just a few years at, later when, like, I love Adele, right? But she, I think she won, I don't remember what award it was, but it was for... She won, like, every category, and she was up against Beyonce and um, the visual album Lemonade, and everybody was just like, wow, how did she, right, like, how did Beyonce not win any category here, and she's made this, like, wonderful piece of art, and so it really brings us back to that moment of Kanye and Taylor Swift, and so that's all to say is, is that I would start with something like that, these cultural moments of interruption and then lead into uh, the history of protest literature and race in America. And it would definitely be, um, like, post-1900, I think, uh, just because I'm beginning with a really contemporary spin, um, and I would probably keep it with that. So using something like Native Son, Long Division, Giovanni's Room, and then breaking those down into further moments of protest. So I might also talk about Evelyn White's essay, which is Black Women in the Wilderness. And so how these texts are always about interrupting a narrative about race, but there are these many different perspectives or sort of ways in which these interruptions work against a specific kind of narrative about race. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can't really sort of gloss over them and say like they're all, they all fall into this neat category. Some of them are thinking about class. Some of them are thinking about gender. Some of them are thinking about uh, like family dynamics, like all of those mm -hmm. sort of things. No, that sounds like a class. I want to take that class. Yeah, Margaret, what would you, what would your special topics be? Yours is so good. <laughs> I was thinking, I guess, something maybe with utopia, dystopia, mm -hmm. and thinking about how people use this, that genre to reimagine society um, and, and see how we can improve it. And so maybe something like, talked about it before, my problematic fave, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, mm -hmm. um, and Harland, but also something like Sutton E. Griggs, um, Imperio and, and Imperium, which if you haven't read it, like surprise twist at the end, you find out there's a secret black government in the United States based in Waco, Texas, that's about to launch a rebellion against the white government. And it ends. Like, that's where it ends is the night of. Yeah. Where, and so you don't know where it's going to go, which I think is a really interesting rhetorical move. Almost the exact opposite of what you're talking about with interruption of of pause, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, where it's like a, I'm going to give you this, and then I'm going to pause, and you have to take over, which I think would also work. It, it's not a dystopia, but that, that if I went with the idea of pause instead of dystopia, Richard Wright's um, Uncle Tom's Children would fit mm -hmm. really well. I feel like that um, those works kind of lead up to that 
pause in Bright and Morning Star. Um, but also, if I went with the Utopia Dystopia, I would do 20th century and work up to Hunger Games, which might be 21st century technically. But I think that'd be a nice one to end on and ask students like, well, what is this novel protesting in our own society? What is what does the dystopia reveal about current society, et cetera? Um, yeah, and so I I think that that would be a really interesting spin for protest literature and definitely, like, eco-protest would... Mm. And not exactly eco-tage, like... Uh, um, like uh, Richard Powers's... I, I was... I yeah. really wanted to tease you and be like, oh, is your that your protest no no i'm thinking about um i'm actually thinking about how the word apocalypse Mm -hmm. the root of it is something like uh, like new beginning Mm -hmm. revelation or uh disclosure Mm -hmm. and so it i've there's this essay that i have don't remember the name We'll look it up, uh, but I assign it to students, and I don't. I remember the name because it, it's like something like apocalypse, new beginning or endings or something like that. But it's this woman who's writing about how after having children, she began to think about like apocalypse, not as the end of the world, but as a moment of like pause and like uh, revamping and what comes after. And so yeah, so like I think that that would be a really interesting special topics course. You're making me think, too, going back to the survey, if you did it with, like, religious texts, um, Flannery O'Connor talks about, like, grace is inherently painful because grace changes you, and so to be changed is a painful process. Mm-hmm. So there's something interesting there, too, I think, like, that if society changes, it's going to be painful, and so think about that um, in terms of, like, apocalypse, tie it back to what's happening right now, that right now like it's painful for society but these are also necessary changes and conversations that we're finally having yeah and you might talk about someone like octavia butler and parable of the sower right Mm. especially with this idea of pause because we don't get the third book and you know uh a lot of that has to do with well there is a conversation that maybe we don't get the third book because butler just can't there's like no way to write about seeding the universe without it being an act of colonialization and so is the pause that moment of i need to figure out a new world building here and Mm -hmm. it's just almost inaccessible to me as we are right now yeah which turns to kind of the issue that we've talked about before with all this is complicity like what how complicit is the classroom mm-hmm. in in these systems that we are protesting and or how complicit is the reader themselves in these systems so like that sort of discomfort that we have to grapple with within the classroom you you talked about this in the beginning of our recording today that you're going to get students who are uncomfortable because they're going to feel like, they're the object of attack. Mm-hmm. And so how to separate that. That, And can you? Like, the saying always is, the personal is political. Yeah, and I think that also, with that line of thought, it has us sort of think about our own com- complicity mm-hmm. in terms of, is it enough 
to just teach these texts and talk about them. Because, I mean, I think that we would probably both agree that no, that's not enough. And so I don't think we're quite ready to move there yet, but later we're going to talk about activism in the class Mm -hmm. and how that could be a part of, like, your scholarly identity and and sort of but but yeah I think it's connected to this idea of complicity yeah so I think like one way we can start having our students grapple with their accountability in in all of this is like a class project that I've been thinking about this just for this episode as we're recording so it's very (laughs) loose loose sketch at this point but I think it would be something that would be easily adaptable for surveys special topics whatever is having your term project be creating a canon or syllabus for this so that they have to think about like what we've been talking about like what's been ignored what's been erased how do we add things um so if we're going to create like a new canon of protest literature like what should be included on it and why and justifying those choices and providing context maybe it would be somewhat like of an exhibit um maybe it would be a syllabus but start and having the students provide that context where they're thinking about well, what's the moment in time that we're responding to what sort of protests were happening which ones are still relevant mm-hmm. etc um but i don't i think that would be a fantastic project and i think that also the more you flesh that out the more possibilities there would be for that mm-hmm. so i'm thinking about how could that project be adaptable based on a student like student adaptability right yeah so if they're an education major how could they think about their particular canon uh for the books that they use in their classrooms or if they are a journalism major how could they think about the history of um like black journalists right which is really relevant right now with the the new york times currently um and so how could they individualize that canon in a way that would make them more aware of their own fields or their own interest and even it could be like not even from just a professional perspective but they could think about something like television or film and also thinking through that this i think would have to be when i say term project like i mean working on it throughout the term Mm -hmm. i know you have your students like work on projects throughout the semester but i don't for i think this to be really effective you can't have them do it the last like two weeks of the course because that's not enough time to really think about well what what has this class not talked about or how do we build on that or, or allow that individual perspective and yeah, you want them to do more than just regurgitate what you've covered in the course. You want them to start taking those next steps to be able to apply it to their personal, professional, political interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I definitely yes. want to talk about that assignment some more because that sounds incredibly productive and interesting to me. Yeah, I still very, very loose sketch. I did something like an in-class assignment sort of like that. But it wasn't a canon. It was thinking about curriculum after we read Prime and Machine Brody. Um, mm-hmm. Machine Brody kind of has her own curriculum she thinks students should learn. So we did a diptych of what what is the curriculum the school enforces, what is the curriculum uh, Miss Brody would prefer. And then we debated it as a class, like what are the merits of all this? What are the drawbacks? And then in small groups, they then started talking about, well, if they were to build their own curriculum for a school, what would they want on it? And then we resumed and talked about it. But 
even that that conversation was loose sketches. It was get the, getting them to think about the politics of a curriculum and the long-term consequences mm-hmm. of these, these sorts of educations. But Yeah, and so, okay, so I think that we also, the last special topics uh, version of this class that I want to mention is the young adult literature. Well, yeah, um, I want to hear about this. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's definitely not as well fleshed out. Uh, but I would be really interested in teaching young adult novels through this idea of the prote- like protest literature and maybe even of uh, maybe specifically about uh, protesting modesty culture or this idea of like virginal worth because I think you have two camps of young adult literature one that's very much like this character will now die a virgin in this dystopia that I'm very displeased with um and then one version of young adult literature that's about like consent and safe sex and things that teenagers are doing uh or that teenagers need to be aware of and so I would want to maybe look at these two things, like these two versions of young adult literature in parallel to each other. So something like on the side of not valuing women for being virgins, I would look at Maria Snyder's Poison Study, which I think I've talked with you about before, but it's this uh, trilogy and it's phenomenal and, and I really like it. And with uh some of the other novel like young adult novels that have been like very pro modesty slash virginity is important to you you and even something like Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, which is you know not a healthy relationship, but virginities up here uh or yeah. divergent where our main character literally is like. The entire series has the spin of like, I'm not going to have sex because I need to wait. And then she dies. And I'm like, what? What? Um, and so that, that, I think maybe probably would not teach that class, but I would like to talk about it. <laughs> um, because it just like annoys me to no end. And I think it annoys other people that are interested in young adult literature or write it because there are other young adult authors that are like, this is terrible in terms of writing characters that are the exact opposite like Graceling uh by Kristen Cashore you know she has a a, like a midwife figure who makes like um birth control for her character I haven't read that in a long time and and so you know it it seems that there's like a conversation or two different camps in terms of Mm. how virginity plays out anyway i've gone on about that a little too long (laughs) well no i think that's interesting and that kind of we can use that to pivot so thinking about when you were talking about birth control like i was even thinking that could be a special topics course and i won't belabor that point but like there's a lot in the 20th century early 20th century you start to see more narratives that are specifically about birth control like both pro and anti as different countries are grappling with like okay we have the technology do we want the technology Mm -hmm. um and it very much like is like you're saying like all these different camps start popping up and they're using novels short stories uh, to kind of further their political agenda whether they're pro or against um and so there's been a lot 
more scholarly interests paid attention to this, I'm going to shout out to kind of a fellow alum who, she was not in the program with us, but her work was really influential for me, Amy Armand, well, Amy Armand Wilson, who wrote um, Conceived in Modernism, which, so she looks at kind of this um, modernist works as um, in the aesthetic of birth control movements, and it's really interesting. What I'm getting to is that this research is really important to understand these sorts of movements and looking for research that wasn't necessarily considered important for a long time. That 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, like when people are doing research on birth control, they're not necessarily turning to modernist works or commercial advertisements, but now we are. Um, and so we're rethinking like what in the archive is important to us or how we're gonna use the archive. And I think that's something, you could have it be your own course, you don't have to, but in the literature course, I think we really need to be more consistently thinking about the ethics of research and addressing that with our students. You've seen it on Twitter page too, like these conversations about like your citations are political, like who are you citing? Absolutely. Yeah, and I don't I don't think we have those sorts of conversations with our students enough. Yeah. Like, who are you citing? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that we've seen more and more feminist scholars bring that question uh, to head of who, you know, on whose shoulders are you standing? And I think that that's really relevant. Yeah, and so like thinking about not just representation in your narratives, but representation in your research, getting those perspectives, addressing with your students that all sources are biased, and so you have to think through not, oh, this is a bias source, so I can't use it. But what's the bias? How does that bias affect the work? How can we determine the bias? Who published it? When was it published? And also thinking, how are you using that source? And like, oftentimes I think our ethics of research stop with plagiarism of that's stealing, <laughs> don't do it. But also thinking about like misrepresenting sources. I think maybe sometimes we talk about that with plagiarism. But also like what Sadia Hartman brings up with Venus and Two Acts mm -hmm. of when we're researching forgotten histories, how much are we overwriting when we try to bring it into contemporary culture? Like we need to do this research, but how do we present it in a way that does the source justice? Right. Uh, and so for a critical take on that. I think that Why Stories Matter by Claire Hemmings mm -hmm. uh, is a really important pertinent examination of like who we cite and the ethics of that and examining feminist historiography and activism. I guess also to add to that, Henry Louis Gates, It's All Greek to Me, where he argues that we need black literary critics specifically to gauge mm -hmm. black works and, and thinking maybe through with your students, one, how he's talking about the ethics of research and scholarly work, but also like using your literary criticism as activism. Like that's an activist work mm -hmm. of, of scholarship. And how do we use archives? How do we use research? How do we use criticism to further our activism? I don't have the answers, obviously, but I think those are big questions we need to be grappling with our students because, and not expecting like, oh, we'll give them the answers about research and those ethics because I think everything's up in the air right now. Um, but our students are gonna have really smart things to say and <laughs> point out like, oh yeah, 
huh, like, I don't, I, I don't know really where I'm going with that, but just to say, like, I think that sort of conversation can be productive on all ends right. to bring it into the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that where you were going was really that we can't sort of stop asking the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the, the, these are areas where I think that when you feel that you if you have this false sense that you know everything you need to know, then you need to examine that because mm-hmm. uh, it, there's just like, that's not possible and maybe shouldn't even be the goal. Yeah, and that if you aren't going to approach a topic until you feel like you know it thoroughly, like, yes, do your due diligence, prepare yourself, don't enter the classroom and just riff on these serious topics, but also be upfront with your students and say like you don't know everything and you're still working through it like I think sometimes as academics we allow fear of being wrong to prevent us from having these serious conversations and instead we just need to allow ourselves to share that vulnerable space with our students yeah and And to work through together yeah and to be willing to walk something back uh especially like as early career academics you know, there are times where I some a student has asked me a really difficult question and I've answered the, to the best of my ability and then I go home and I'm like, here's how I should have handled that. You know, I read something and I'm like, that's how I should have handled that. And and having that moment where you, you go back and you say, I did this wrong um, and now I want to talk about it differently with you. Sorry, you can see me laughing a little bit maybe and it's only because I'm remembering a time I did that and I brought it up the next time I saw my students but it was a twice a week class and so they were like oh we didn't even remember you did that <laughs> what, what were and I was like oh well I still want you guys to have <laughs> the corrected answer <laughs> but yeah they were like, oh. they're like okay yeah cool yeah um <laughs> Yeah, totally just like, what is she talking about? That's But it was still important, I think, like, just to model that of this mm-hmm. is how you be wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm really used to that reaction, not for my students per se, but for my kids where they're like, what? Yeah, okay, sure. You know, <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah, so, okay, we should now switch to our topic on, like, activism in the class. And so we have yeah. discussed how um, sort of, teaching and engaging with protest literature is a form of activism, but I think that we are ending on a more sort of like assignment-based version of activism in the classroom. So, Mm -hmm. or I guess like how activism moves outside the walls of the classroom. And so, yeah. Yeah. And this is like an important topic for me and and we're going to cover it pretty quickly just because of time. But I think a lot about uh, my undergrad experience at College of Charleston with Allison Peepmeyer in the women's studies department and how very early on in like, I think it was like a senior seminar where she talked about uh, the role of an academic can't just be uh, in the ivory tower. And as like a, you know, 20, 21 year old student, I don't think I fully grasped what she meant there. But I think back to how, cause she was the director of the women's studies program. And I think back to how each class I took in that track, what had a clear message of activism as part of um, that classroom experience. And so it was in that 
I want to say that every class I had had some sort of element to definitely like the intro to women and gender studies class. I know every section had to have an activist project at the end. Um, but I think other classes did as well. I know I took like women in religion and just a couple others that were under that umbrella and they all had projects that took you outside of academia in some way and outside of the classroom into the community to do work and be connected to a, a, a community outside of that sort of insular institution mm-hmm. yeah yeah so I think with that like how do you move outside the institution one small way that anyone could implement that in their own classroom regardless of the course topic um, I found an assignment online and I wish I could give credit I will look it up afterwards and I will share this as a resource and give link it to the original source but it was a reflection activity where the, the assignment was for the student to pick a politician of their choice at any level, local, state, national, and write a letter to them advocating, either advocating or like thanking the politician for the work they've already done and like encouraging them to continue, but incorporate the work we did in that class to explain why the student wanted this. Um, so like, for example, in my class, um, one of the, it was a women in lit class. One of the novels we covered, which I'm sure I will talk many, many times again about is Kurigadora by Gail Jones, which is another activist novel, but that's also super problematic. Um, but it was a lot of students like first introduction to involuntary sterilization and that history of it. And so a number of my students wrote to politicians um, advocating for either, I remember one advocated, was requesting a statue or monument be made to for the women who had been involuntarily sterilized under the state's programs. Um, another student uh, wrote a politician to discuss like the laws that were on the books about um, reproductive rights, things like that. So they all did different takes on it. And, and also students covered many other works as well this this is just what immediately comes to mind but thinking about okay we read this novel and by reading this novel I learned these things made me think about this I then researched this and this is what I think we should be doing as a community right now and it's you know not a huge assignment the students are expected to write like one or two pages it's a letter you know that the politicians aren't going to read 20 pages from an undergrad um but it also gives them the tools to kind of keep writing those letters once they leave the classroom and keep advocating and learning like, okay, how do you support your advocacy? You can't just say, I feel this way, so you should do it. You have to back it up. Um, how do you research the people who have the, this control? I really like that as an assignment. Um, it was successful when I did it, and I plan on doing it again. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic assignment. That sounds like a really good assignment that would be very productive. And I also like that it has a lot of flexibility flexibility for the students to decide what topic matters to them or what interests that they're passionate about that they want to get involved with. And And I think that it reminds me a little bit also of the importance of sharing like your own sort of community outreach and passion with your students and so for example thinking back to my experience in undergrad 
I remember specifically what my professors were passionate about. So I had like a sociology professor who worked at the Rape Crisis Center. Um, I had a women and gender studies professor who worked for, um, who also did work with the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so there were these moments where it was relevant to class. So like the sociology class was a sociology in the family. And so rape came up, right? Sexual assault Mm -hmm. came up. And, And in those moments, she talked to us about her experiences outside of the classroom and in the community. Same with, um, the professor who worked with Southern Poverty Law Center. And so I think that uh, there's potential to share your own involvement in the community um, as a way of being a resource to your student uh, um, in terms of, I know that a lot of students volunteered at the Rape Crisis Center after because of their relationship with their professor. And um, your students are often maybe just starting out on their own sort of path of like community activism. And, and that can be a really hard thing to get started in like an overwhelming thing. And so assignments that are open-ended enough that they can choose the thing that they actually care about outside of just the class uh, is a really good entry way into getting involved like long-term in movements. Yeah. I think that's so interesting about how like your professors were able to incorporate that their passion for advocacy and how that was able to shape the course that's I'm just kind of well I think frozen on that considering like like it's really intriguing well and I think like we've talked about literacy right and a really sort of obvious apparent way to do that ourselves would be to think about what programs um what literacy programs are available in the program or in the community. And I know that you volunteered for a literacy outreach mm-hmm. program through a local church on campus at FSU or? No, it was actually um, United Way. And it was the Big Ben chapter. Mm, okay. So, um, and yeah, so that one was called Reading Pals. Yeah. And- but there's other similar, just I want to shout this out to listeners to share that this, Reading, it's also reading partners in other areas. So if you are too are passionate about literacy, look up Reading Pals or Reading Partners because they have a lot of different chapters throughout the country. Yeah, and absolutely. And another thing that I always shared with my students when I was in Tallahassee was that I was involved with the library system had mm-hmm. a literacy slash tutoring like across the board program that was volunteer based. And so just even if you're not prepared to give an entire assignment on these things, giving them a list of resources and part of that list could be beginning with yourself. What are the opportunities in the community to be involved and to do things? And and I think that you get a lot of reaction from that. And sometimes you can, you know, work in extra credit opportunities. I think you have to be careful because there are some ethics to that of, yeah. right, like having volunteer work or community work be extra credit might not be, it's not the push that I particularly prefer. Yeah, but with that, you and I have talked about this briefly before, but there's a lot of classes that focus on literacy narratives and literacy, and that something like that as a special topics would be a really easy way to open to making your classroom a service learning class an activist classroom where as you're reading literacy narratives like thinking about like 
how can your students be involved in literacy advocacy, whether that's volunteering or maybe like thinking about fundraising for a program or thinking about like if they're, you've mentioned education majors before, like creating a curriculum to help with literacy for like adults, that there's a lot of literacy programs for kids, but what about adults who are struggling? Or writing their own literacy narratives. I don't know, I think that's something too, like you said, the more I think people work on that sort of project, it's gonna become like this sort of infinite potential of what you can do to Expand Become it. a literacy advocate, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that what we really are sort of ending on is this notion that uh, you don't have to teach a class on protest literature to be invested in activism outside the classroom, right? Or to orient any class towards a more community-involved, like, ethos, you know? Yeah, there's things, too, um... There was a class at the Citadel, so also in Charleston, that did this. I was not in the class. I had friends in the class who talked about it, and it was a um, class that was geared for teachers. But one of their assignments was having to interview vets who wanted their wartime experiences documented and preserved. And so they would have to interview the vets, and then they'd have to you know, art, make the narrative ready for archival. But you can do that with other communities, too thinking about like which communities maybe aren't always heard and how can you not only preserve their stories but spotlight them. Um, You could show like your students like the Instagram or website Humans of New York as an inspiration. Like how do you have these conversations? Um, What are communities we want to share their narrative? How do you do that ethically? Um, I joked with you before about Weathering Heights is a literacy narrative and there's a lot of politics happening in the end you don't want to like be the white savior but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be involved yeah absolutely and so okay I am really happy with today's discussion uh I have a lot of ideas and so I think we should wrap up and so Margaret tell me your dream course today Ooh, what is my dream course today? We've gone over so many. Ah, <laughs> I think now that I'm thinking uh, about this sort of thing, I would want to do specifically a literacy narrative course. I'd want to look at novels and short stories that are about or feature scenes where people learn how to read or are educated, whatever. I, I would maybe play loose with the idea of like what a literacy narrative is. Um, and I would want it to have an activist component. So have introduce a project at the beginning of the semester to my students that they would be working on throughout the semester. So they could choose, you know, tailor to what they need. Maybe it's like, you know, creating curriculum. Maybe it's how do we fundraise for these programs, etc. I think Wuthering Heights, I would love to kind of use, like I said, to talk about those politics that I think at the end you have like little Kathy civilizing Heathcliff's son. Like, oh, if only Heathcliff had had an education, he would have been a real man, just like the English. Like, <laughs> we, we need to avoid that. Like, think about how like education and literacy can be used as a cultural genocide mm-hmm. or tool of cultural genocide. But obviously literacy is often used to empower people um, and empower communities. So walking that line and um, uh, what about you? What are you thinking? I kind of want to teach a class on like satire and, but it's completely, you know, 
not fleshed out, but I th- I think that in a really obvious way, I'd maybe talk about satire and protest as a, and the history of satire with protest, and and that feels really broad, off the cuff, but so I think I'd have to narrow some. It makes me think though. Um, we read Catch Twenty Two in high school. Yeah, I was thinking about Catch Catch Twenty Two. Yeah, that's one of the novels that made me want to become an English major. Um, because of seeing like what language could do with like satire and protest exactly what you're talking about Mm -hmm. and I think something you could do is like think about what makes something funny why is it funny like and and that can be a really cool entry point yeah I think about Hawthorne and or even like Melville's Billy Budd and like how these things are like funny but not uh, right you, you know and so yeah like, what are we laughing at? Or who are we laughing with? Versus laughing, laughing at. The tears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think that would be my dream course right now. Well, we want to hear definitely about your dream courses at home. What would be your dream activist course? What would be your dream course in general? What are you doing right now to make these dream courses? Please share because want to hear yeah and also you know assignments that you think uh, we did mention that would be really helpful here for an activist classroom as we said before this is collaborative effort it only works if we're all working it together yeah definitely okay margaret we'll talk to you later